Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Substantial Life Podcast. We have been doing a series on worldviews where we have been discussing firstly the idea that your view on God and on the world matters. We did an episode where we discussed different worldviews like animism, polytheism and monotheism. Then we followed up with an episode specifically focused on naturalism, the idea that no God exists and the natural world is all that there is. We also had a question and answer session where we discussed some difficult questions, especially regarding the Christian worldview. And then we also had an interview with Louise Mabil on existentialism. If you are interested in any of these topics, I would encourage you to check those episodes out. Today, we will be discussing a very difficult conversation in the Christian worldview. It's the question called the problem of evil. And let's jump in it. I'm Job Foster. I'm Pierre Leroux. I'm Karnu van Heerden. So we have our guest, Karnu van Heerden, here. He has a master's degree in theology with specialization in apologetics. And he also has a prominent role in the local apologetics organization, Rasho Christi, that has some international branches as well. And I think the question we should then ask, what is the problem of evil? How do people typically discuss it? So there are two sides to the problem of evil. There is the logical side and the experiential side. So the logical problem of evil was used as a counter-argument to Christianity. And it basically states that if the Christian God exists, then he is an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing being. However, if he's all-loving, all-powerful and all-knowing, then why is there evil? Because if he's all-powerful, you should be able to stop evil. If he's all-knowing, you should be able to know that there is evil and the suffering it would cause. And if he's all-loving, you should have a desire to stop it. However, there is still evil in the world today. Therefore, the Christian God can then not exist. Or so the logical argument would go. The experiential problem, however, is less about the logical problem of whether there is a God or not based on the experience of evil and whether it contradicts some of the attributes of God, but rather about why do I experience evil and how is there some consolation for me in this life? Okay, there we go. Yeah, I think um, thank you for sharing with us, Pierre, regarding what is sort of the statement and the form of the argument regarding the problem of evil and i think it's important to know before we address the whole problem it's key always that we should define our terms we need to know what we're talking about and so we need to have a definition of what evil is and so when we think about evil usually yeah there are a bunch of different understandings Uh, and uh, concerning evil amongst the various worldviews and religions around the world. Um, But if you ask any everyday person, I think when you ask them, you know, what is evil? You know, they sometimes they would just, well, it's something bad. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a useful tautology. But but there is a recognition. It's a correct recognition that it's something gone wrong. Maybe um, it's some sort of force that is opposed to the good, which is sort of a dualistic form of evil, you know, good and bad, or like eternally locked in a uh, combat concerning the souls of men or the fate of the universe, which is the foundation of every epic, you know, comic book story or movie uh, that we see in media, in the media. 
Um, so that's sort of a lot of the times the common intuition people have about evil. It's an opposing force against good. Um, some would say, well, evil might just be some form of a state of mind in that they would say, well, look, evil is not evil is only comes from the mistakes of people. So evil is not really real. Maybe it's just born out of the fact that people don't correctly apprehend the good or they just then they just make a common mistake. Um, and yeah, there are, there are a bunch more, but I think, I don't know, you, you can maybe add more, but those are some of the common intuitions regarding evil that I've come across. Uh, if you just ask someone on the street. That's yeah. Usually. What is important to note is evil is different from suffering. Mm. Because people don't experience a crisis merely when there is suffering. When we go exercise, we say that it is better to suffer for some good. And we don't call the suffering that you experience while jogging evil. Because you chose it and it's not causing you significant harm. But the problem of evil has more to do with malicious evil mm. and often hopelessness. When you lose a family member for no reason, when a murder is committed and there is not justice, mm. or when a natural disaster takes the lives of a whole group of people. This is typically what people are talking about. And again, we should distinguish between reading in the news about the deaths of a group of people that is often used in the problem of evil, but also our personal experience of both our own and other people's moral failings. Then there's also the distinction between evil that you can kind of understand how a god would use evil like that and the type of evil that seems to be completely pointless. Mm. For example, if you think of this great evil event where people might have died and it leads to some moral reform. You could maybe argue for some point in that. But why is there stuff like, I stumped my toe? How, how can good come from that? Or a car accident where you're just paralyzed afterwards. Mm. And it's not like some story where you become this intellectual giant because you're paralyzed or anything. You just become sad. Mm. That's the type of thing people are typically referring to. And I think many of us experience this. We experience seemingly pointless suffering that has no good end that comes out of it. And now the question that the problem of evil states is how can a good, all-powerful, all-knowing God allow this? Yes. Yeah, and that's why I think when coming back to the understanding of what evil is, is that now we look at some of the common notions or common definitions people have of evil. But um, it's good then to maybe look at the classical understanding of evil. Like, for example, um, <clears throat> in classical Christian theism, evil is understood as a privation. And privation is just a fancy word for twisting or corruption. Uh, sort of a lack of something that ought to be there. Um, for example, if we see a cat and we see the cat walking down the street, but we observe that the cat only has three legs and we know what a cat is and it's supposed to be something that has four legs. We say the cat is suffering evil. The cat's not doing evil, but the cat is suffering evil because the cat has lost a leg. Um, but if we sort of inquire and, you know, we find the owner of the cat and we inquire, why has the cat lost his leg? And uh, the owner says, no, well, my sister 
uh, took a baseball bat or a cricket bat and hit the cat repeatedly and beat off its leg or something. I know that's a bit a visceral example, but but think I'm, I'm just using it because that's going to give us the distinction between just evil that is experienced by human beings and all creatures and actually moral evil, doing evil. Okay, because the owner's sister who beat the cat with a cricket, uh, cricket bat, she is committing an evil. She is causing the privation. She is taking away from the cat what it ought to have and, and cutting off sort of uh, the good of, of having four legs, and which affects his general life and existence as well. And, um, and that's unique to human beings because we uh, you know, can apprehend truth, goodness, beauty. And so since we can apprehend it, we know it, we can interact with it, and we can take it away. That's where the evil comes in. So <clears throat> we are the only beings capable of committing evil, though all beings are capable of, you know, suffering evil. Because we intentionally commit it, yes. You can see this difference clearly with a tree. If you have a tree planted in a desert, it wilts and dies if it is not its native environment. And so this tree suffers evil because it doesn't have the environment that it needs to flourish. But it's not that the tree can choose where it is planted. Its seeds merely falls and it grows according to its genetic programming. The difference is with us humans is that the contrary is possible. We can decide where to plant a tree or we can decide what to do with our limbs and with our mind and with our words. And I think that is what Karnu is getting at. It's also the difference between a parasite and a human being. The parasite that eats away at the tree or the worm that eats off the leaves of the tree causing the death of that tree isn't purposefully doing an act it could do contrary to. It's just the type of thing it is. The, the, the worm that eats the, the leaves is just doing what it naturally would do towards its own good. And that accidentally causes the death of the tree. It's not a purposeful thing. But for us as human beings, when you bore a hole into that tree and you start throwing oil in there or petrol to kill the tree, then you're purposefully doing that. You could do contrary, but the parasite can't. It doesn't have that, that ability. Yeah, it doesn't have will. Yeah. yeah, because it's the difference between, you know, we don't lock up a lion when it kills a gazelle. But if you eat your neighbors, we are gonna, <laughs> you're going to jail um, for a very long time. <laughs> but um, so I think <clears throat> understanding evil as a privation in that sense, a privation of being, is essential to addressing the problem of evil. Because it's going to give us, you know, the tools we need to actually seeing how we can overcome it. Because if it's such a facet that is incorporated into existence or reality... You know, there's going to be some qualifications on how to deal with that. Um, yes, sir. Basically, because reality is complicated, I mean, we see it in all the natural sciences, in mathematics, in everything. The answer to the problem of evil is not necessarily going to be simple. Mm. Although I do think it is something that one can understand to some extent with sufficient mm. thought. Yes. Yeah, and I would think... Um, if we one thing that I've always thought of, like taking, because it was a good sort of a revelation, you could say, when I understood what um, evil was, because I always took it for granted. I just I go, well, evil is evil, and that we just have this experience of badness. Um, but when I started to understand 
evil as a privation of the good, um, it really shaped my thinking and trying to understand how can we overcome evil? And as Christians, how does God overcome evil? And why does he allow it? If something, if evil is a corruption, and it's uh, something that sort of is a, like a parasite or like rust on a car. The only way to ultimately get rid of it is through destruction. Because it's so fundamentally part of the thing. Um, and it's sort of, um, you know, building its existence of something else. You will have to destroy the good to get rid of evil. That's why I think in Christianity, ultimately, I think, and we don't think about this a lot, but the thing is, there's a positive view of death because death uh, gets rid of the privation. And that's why resurrection is needed. And that's why the resurrection separates us then from the evil. Yeah. Um, what's helpful to think is if you think about the rust on a car, if you want to stop the rust, you either need some chemical that would stop the chemical reaction or you need mm. to cut off the rusted part exactly. and isolate it from what caused the rust in the first place. And when we have moral evil as humans, there's a real sense in which you either need to stop what causes the moral evil or we need to remove the source of the moral evil completely. And if we add to the analogy as Christians, you'd also need to put something over it to stop it from rusting again. Yes, exactly. Hence the resurrection. Yes. And the indwelling of the spirit. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that's a, a good sort of classical understanding um, of what evil is. But then one may ask, where was this always part of God's plan? Where did this thing come from? And so I think going to our next sort of understanding before we address the problem of evil as a whole and getting to those arguments, it's good to understand, okay, where does evil come from? And I think, again, it, there's a caveat to answering that question because remember when we spoke about evil as being a privation, it's not like, it's not a thing like a substance or an object or something. It's something that exists as on something else. So it doesn't have its own like independent existence. It's real. That doesn't mean evil is an illusion like some Eastern uh, philosophies might say. Um, but it's just saying that it is, is it, it exists in something else. And so um, if we especially take that understanding of, of evil and looking sort of at the original creation, one can think anything that has the potential for change possibly can undergo evil. Yes. Yeah. Anything that can change mm. and has some sort of freedom mm. and can choose contrary to the freedom mm. oh. no, and no, can choose right. contrary to the purpose yes. that can have evil. Moral evil. Yes. Yes. Moral evil. yes. I think that the question is, why did God allow that freedom? I, I've heard someone say that because God made Adam and Eve, he caused the fall. Mm. So they said that God knew that Adam and Eve would sin. He made them. Therefore, he caused the fall. How would you answer that? Is there, 
Is that logically sound? Is there some sort of fallacy in that? Or hmm. what would you... Yeah, well, I think it's just important to look at the various... If we talk about the word cause, to look at the various types of causes. Because if we talk about sort of the primary and secondary sense of causation, well, God knowing this would happen and stuff, and he's upholding people who are free agents who choose evil. God is the primary cause of their existence. But in some technical sense... You could say God is the primary sort of cause for letting it happen. But that doesn't mean he is the cause of evil. But there's the potential for evil always. Because the we are not God, beings of pure act. We are composed of act and potentiality. Potentiality to develop, to be our true selves as God has made us. Or disobey and go the other direction. And so um, that's the primary cause that God initiated. It was originally good and it would have stayed good to this point had it not been for Adam and Eve who abused their free will. And so that's where we get to the secondary cause, the human beings that use their free will. We are the direct cause of evil. And so also there's another, when we talk about the four types of causes, material, efficient, final, formal, Human beings are the efficient, or i.e. the agent cause, of evil. Because again, the, the, it, was, it wasn't determined. There was like, hey, you can choose this or this. You can choose to obey. They, you could have easily chosen to obey, um, but they didn't. And so they are still responsible. It's like, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, when God, it say, Peter speaks to the Jew and Jews and he says, this Jesus, who was delivered according to uh, delivered up according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of evil men. It's interesting because God knew it was going to happen, and so and and actually, coming you know the Son coming incarnated and dying on the cross, it was part of the plan. But the people who denied Christ, despite his testimony, and actually sentenced him to death, despite him not doing anything wrong. They will. The blood is still on their hands. They still are held morally accountable. Uh, a nice analogy I found with thinking of God's foreknowledge and our ability to choose would be if you, for example, knew your wife so well that you know taking her to a restaurant and giving her an option to drink something, she would basically for certain choose a strawberry milkshake. Though there's hot chocolate, there's coffee, there's tea, all of these different drinks, you could just drink some water. However, you know, if I were to take her to this restaurant, then she would drink this milkshake. And then you decide, well, we're going to go out and we're going to go to the restaurant and she drinks the milkshake. I think it would be wrong to say you were the primary cause of her drinking the milkshake because she still has free will she's a free being she could have chosen otherwise but you just knew that given her um, her disposition she would drink a milkshake in that case you could see a great example of how we preserve our free will as as causes which actually do things like actually just deciding to drink the milkshake or not drink the milkshake Mm. and you have that free will and that foreknowledge that isn't the direct cause of the event. So God, knowing that Adam and Eve would sin, it doesn't mean he's the one that caused them to sin. And as we've spoken previously on the podcast, 
God makes his moral will very well known. Mm. He's very clear on do not do this. I do not want you to do this. And he even goes further to give reasons why you ought not to do this. Mm. But that doesn't mean he's going to stop you from doing those things that would eventually lead to evil. One interesting thing, some people who state the problem of evil are determinist. So, yes. so some naturalists who believe the physical world is all that there is, they believe humans are just biological machines. And they would say, God made the world, so therefore he caused Adam and Eve to sin. Now that would be true if the world would be deterministic. Yes. But note that naturalism assumes God does not exist, therefore we are machines. Therefore, according to the problem of evil, God does not exist. So you can see there's a bit of a circle in that. If you assume determinism and state the problem of evil, you're begging the question. It's a logical fallacy. Yes. So one should understand if you are, if you are yourself not a believer and you're thinking about the problem of evil, don't take naturalistic assumptions to try to answer it. Because naturalism isn't consistent with Christianity. It's just the facts of the matter. You should take Christianity assumes that we are free beings because God gives us the ability to be free. Not, we are not mechanical, determined machines. Yes. Yeah, it's important. I just want to mention because um, unfortunately the, uh, that type of thinking has crept into the church. Because the fact is we've abandoned these categories, like for example, these causes which I would argue appear in scripture, <laughs> they are kind of assumed, um, but we abandoned them. And so now we get to these conclusions and what we would call, it's called fatalism. So you get people who are Christians who are fatalists in the sense like free will, they would go so far and say free will is an illusion. Um, God is predetermining everything. And it's similar to some tenets in Islamic theism as well. On that note, that, yeah, that's not good because then you could actually make the argument and rightly object and say that God is the direct cause of evil. And so that's why if we take uh, out these concepts of the causes, take out free will, then definitely God is then the cause of evil. But like you said, Christianity, I think orthodox classical Christianity, you know, it kind of stands for and makes the case for human beings having their own free will and they are held responsible for their actions. Yeah, so what actually means is hyper-Calvinism. Now I'm speaking about complete mm -hmm. determinism, the idea that God preordains every action exactly. and every outcome is actually not consistent with a good, loving, uh, all-knowing God. So that actually shows you that if you come to that conclusion, there must have been a fallacy in your argument. Mm. Yes. And to also add to that, beyond just giving good scriptural and, and theological arguments for the defense of free will. I think there's also good philosophical grounds to reject determinism. 
for example, even if you are a naturalist, you would get naturalists like Thomas Nagel, for example, mm. who would deny determinism because they say your experience of free will is more consistent than some far removed logical argument against it. So it's the classical point of where do you begin your philosophy? Do you begin it with a doubt whether you have your hand and you need to give arguments for the existence of your hand? Or you begin with, I experience my hand, therefore I have a hand. Because any argument for your existence of your hand will be one step removed from your experience of your hand. There's no better grounds to believe something than the actual experience of that thing, given no contrary reasons to believe it. So if you have good contrary reasons that maybe outweigh your direct experience, then you need to start doubting it. And I don't think determinism gives those good reasons. In fact, I think every experience in reality gives a contrary reason for not thinking that we should be determinists. Think of the absurdity determinism leads to. If determinism is true, there's no good reason to throw people into jail because they never actually did something wrong. They couldn't help that their physical and chemical reactions and neuropathways led them to do these acts. And saying we should remove them from society to stop them from doing these evil acts because they, they can't help it. They don't have free will. Assumes you have free will in order to be able to stop these individuals and choose to then put them into Jail. So ultimately, I think there's a contradiction at the bottom of naturalism when it comes to their determinism. So there are more than there are excellent theological reasons to believe in free will, but I think there's also excellent philosophical reasons. Mm. Yes. No, I agree. And I am coming back to it on the origin as well. Another thing that I've heard, and I think it's important to address this, is. For example, okay, let's say there's this origin point of evil. Maybe that is granted. But why does it persist? And I think, again, that's why we have lost the classical definition of evil. Because I think we underestimate how deep evil had penetrated nature. Not just human nature, but all, na all of nature. Um, because it's a privation of the good or, or of being and attaching itself to everything as a parasite. I think the moment when sin took place, it embedded itself into human nature. That's why when Adam and Eve still had children, it persisted. It carries over from generation to generation because it's ingrained itself into human nature. And that's why, you know, we see when God is, you know, it's getting at, at the time of Noah and the evil got really out of control and pretty much God presses the reset button almost, but then he wipes out all of the earth, but um, except for the few righteous. But even we see the descendants of the righteous, uh, eventually the evil nature still persists. And I think God is showing us in that story of Noah and the ark and the flood. Uh, it's actually sort of a commentary on this, the desperate state of human nature. Because despite everything that happened and God seeded out his judgment there, the evil nature still persists. So by destruction, um, and you think, okay, it destroys the myth of, okay, we are the good people. Those are the bad people. Um, the thing is, but the thing is, this line of evil runs through the heart of all, all uh, people, like Solzhenitsyn said in the Gulag Archipelago. And so it persists until it, that it is changed on a fundamental, formal level. So the only one that can change 
the nature is the one who created the nature. So who is the origin of the human nature? That's God himself. And so God himself needs to change human nature in that sense. He needs to fix it. And then uh, that's the only way we can overcome evil. But also thinking about how evil, I just want to say this as well, and not just affected humanity, it's implanted in its nature and carries over over the generations. It's interesting reading in the Genesis account as well, when Adam has said he's like in strife with creation. When he's trying to make crops, there will be thorns and thistles. It seems creation itself has been tainted. And um, there's a conflict between man and nature. And we see um, in the New Testament as well, I think it's in the Romans, if I remember correctly, when we say, oh, the whole creation is groaning for the uh, Christ's return, because it is also suffering this evil, this parasite that has spread. And so when Christ returns, it will all be taken away and made anew and made anew without any sense of privation. Oh, there are so many things there. Um, This thing that a privation can only be taken away by removing the thing that is privated. In Finland, if they have mold in a house, they have to completely destroy the house. Mm. There's no other way of removing the mold because in, especially in the winter, those houses are very well isolated. So if you have a little bit of privation, you have a mold that's living off of the dampness in the house, you have to destroy the whole house. And what the story of Noah's Ark is saying is that in a sense, humanity was wiped out, but but Noah and his family remained. But the first story after the flood story is how Noah fell short himself. Exactly. So what the scripture is saying is that it is almost impossible to wipe out evil without wiping out humanity. It's mm. good. And that is where the Christian message where Joel said, I will pour out my spirit on your young people. And there's a different prophet that says, I will write the law on your hearts. This idea that we are foundationally changed. And that is how evil is solved without destruction. Mm. We as modern people, we, we have great aversion to destruction. Yes. I mean, we, we stand up against the death sentence. We think um, genocide is seen as one of the greatest moral evils in modern discourse. But if you spoke to a Babylonian, they wouldn't say that. If you, if you spoke to a Roman, they wouldn't say that. If you spoke to a German in the 18th century, they would not say that. It's a very modern thing to believe that destruction is inherently evil. And that just shows that how Christian we actually are. Because we believe people are inherently valuable and that destroying them isn't a very great evil. But what the Christian message is saying is that, yes, evil has pervaded not only human society, but also creation. And that's also an excellent, excellent point. If you disturb the equilibrium of creation, that disturbance of equilibrium spreads. And you might have one evil person who destroy a woodland and that effect on the ecosystem spreads and then influences an innocent person at a different place because the, the effect of the evil spreads and then affects people who are innocent. Mm. And, and that is a, a healthy answer, I think, to uh, natural evil. Like many people ask, Why do people experience floods or tornadoes or volcanic eruptions or earthquakes? Why does that type of evil happen that is independent of humans? Well, on the one hand, we have disturbed nature greatly. So things like droughts, tornadoes and floods, we can 
some of them we can partly attribute to ourselves. But there's also a helpful answer that um, Jordan Peterson said, the thing that pushes people down is not necessarily only suffering, but malevolent suffering. When a flood comes and then the government comes and takes, takes everything you have. If a flood comes and people come to help, that doesn't cause that deep existential crisis. So if we were without sin and we actually cared for one another, even if there would be earthquakes, volcanic eruptions and floods, we would firstly have the foresight to predict them and to mitigate them. We would have the um, kindness to help people. And I don't think the problem of evil would be nearly as strong if people's response to natural evil was kind and loving. That's just a thought on that. So to summarize, in terms of the logical argument of the problem of evil, why would a good, all-powerful, all-knowing God allow evil? Well, a good, all-powerful, all-loving God allowed free beings. And he, through his omnipotence, allows free beings to continue being free. Free beings chose evil, and God cannot remove the evil without removing the freedom. God values the freedom and decided to rather take a different path, the path of regeneration, where he removes the sinful part, like Paul says, the fleshly man, but he puts in a new spiritual man through the Holy Spirit. And that is the essence of the Christian message. And so to say that the problem of evil is something that is a foundational defeater to Christianity shows an incomplete understanding of Christianity because the problem of evil is central the cross literally shouts the problem of evil. Why do people crucify the innocent Christ? And so it is actually very foundational. God values our freedom to a limit, to an extent. There comes a point where our freedom gets consequences. And that is what hell and heaven are and death. And death is merely the consequence. And um, So we spoke about the free will defense against the problem of yeah. evil. Then there's also, which nicely forms part and, and was implicitly mentioned in your explanation and summary, is, but I think we should just mention it explicitly as well, is the greater good theodicy. So just to st take a step back to the logical problem, if you think of philosophers such as Anthony Flew, yes. who wrote the logical problem of evil, but he was answered... Um, yeah, it's Anthony Flew did it, but it's also J.L. Mackey. Yeah, and J.L. Yeah. Mackey, who yeah. gave these logical problem, the logical problem of evil, and then it was answered by the defense that God brings out a greater good from the evils that occur in this life. That's the central tenet, as Job said, of Christianity, that we see a crucified Messiah. We see that there is this horrible and evil act of an innocent man, and if you're a Christian, you would believe... God himself being crucified by human beings, which is an atrocity. It's, it's a horrible thing to do and to happen. And yet we as Christians celebrate it. Why? Because we believe God brings the greatest good out of this great evil, which is a comment to his omnipotence, really, that he's so powerful you can bring great good out of this great evil. So the defense goes that Although an all-loving, all-powerful, all-good God allows evil, he does so in order to bring greater good out of that evil. 
if, if I can also just say as well, yeah, I think especially when we talk about God, you know, how he is overcoming evil. It's also like when we, we spoke actually before we started this podcast, we spoke about the nature of love and how love is the most powerful force of change. Love as correctly understood as willing the good of another. It's an act of the will, not just some fleeting emotion. Because then it makes you understand in a deeper way. John 3.16, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so the way in which God loves his creation so much, because he, again, we with the story of Noah, he showed us, uh, showed us that the problem of evil will still persist because it's so deeply ingrained in nature. So God is actually sort of showing us the only way to get rid of this is either completely annihilate everything, but God loves what he created. God is not some apathetic despot that just is going to click the off button, you know, control or delete, you know, <laughs> and let's just restart the universe. Uh, no, because he loves his creation and especially humanity made the Imago Day, made in his image. He has a special relation with us. He will go all the way to go the, you know, not go annihilation or destruction, but go the other way, taking the route of bringing about good through the evil and all the suffering to bring about a real deep change to reconcile that which he created and what he views as special and valuable um, to reconcile that truly to himself. Because the thing is, he's able to destroy, yes, but he's also able to recreate. That's why these theological categories like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit uh, for example, is so essential if we say how Christians deal with evil, because we still struggle with sin, even post uh, salvation. But that's why the Holy Spirit helps us to fight against it. But also, I believe the doctrine of the resurrection is so key in understanding and combating evil, because it's sort of the guarantee of the destruction of evil. I mean, like Jesus died and he came back. Death has been overcome. Oh, death, where is your sting? And so that's one of the greatest manifestations of evil. And it's something that brings so much existential dread towards people is the reality of death. But in Christianity, historically, and if I read the early church fathers, and it's so strange and so foreign to our modern concept of death and life, because they embraced and rejoiced when Christian, fellow Christian brothers and sisters died. And they were actually kind of jealous because it's like they already reached the end point because... In that sense, the seal was already there. The Holy Spirit is helping you. But when the final death comes, it's sort of the Holy Spirit will pull you through and the sin is finally left behind. And then Paul speaks about the fact that we will have glorified bodies like Christ and rise from the dead like he has. It will be completely sinless and the privation will be finally removed. And that's sort of, I think, also a way in which I would challenge someone on the problem of evil. It's a very existential way, but it's like if people keep saying no problem of evil, this and this and that, it's like Christianity has an answer. And you can look at the fact that Christians are not supposed to fear death. In fact, we welcome it. I'm like, what do you have? What can you give me that is an alternative to the problem of evil? Are you going to say it's an illusion? That doesn't seem very satisfying. Are you going to say it's some sort of duality that is in an eternal deadlock? Well, then it seems evil will never be overcome. It's like, what can you give me? 
that is a better alternative to overcoming evil? Are you just going to be the nihilist that bites the bullet? And, you know, all is meaningless. You know, I would commend you for being consistent, but really no one can live that type of lifestyle. It seems to me about all the worldviews, and I've, well, my, I myself have looked at a few of them, you know, I've yet to come across one that gives me a satisfactory answer like Christianity does. But I'm open to disagreement, you know. But if, you, if you're out there, people, and you're listening, if you have a better answer to the problem of evil, yeah, please go ahead. To add to Karnu's point on the Christian view of death, if you look at Philippians 1 verse 21 till 24, Paul says there, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. We see that for Christians to live here is a wonderful privilege in this life. And that while we are here, there's hard work to do to reach people and to love them, to love one another and to follow Christ for as long as he blesses us with life. However, the idea that Christianity gives of the life that is to come and that we believe is shown to be true in the resurrection of Jesus is one that far surpasses any joy and, mm. and gladness in this life. And where if we speak about reaching our purposes is where joy and happiness is. For us as Christians, we believe that our main purpose is to be with God. Therefore, the reaching of that goal is true joy and happiness without end for we find finite happiness in finite things in this life, but there awaits infinite happiness when we are with Him who is infinite. Yes. And that gives us hope. That is one of the fundamental aspects also in Christianity is, is, is hope. I remember it's a very awesome chapter in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And he writes about the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. But his chapter on hope, yo, it's, it's short, but it's so good. Because he's saying how this hope in this life to come and to overcome evil, it gives us, it gives us real hope. And it gives you, you grit to face the evils of this world. Because the thing is, we need to face the evils of this world. We, need to, we shouldn't be apathetic. We need to you know, fight injustice and we need to, if even gratuitous evil happens, um, you know, there's a flood. Hey, go volunteer and help those people uh, to, uh, who have lost their livelihoods. Um, and this hope, C.S. Lewis depicts this hope, this real hope, and he says we've forgotten it, but we need to remember that hope, the reality of this hope, is the hope that helped the apostles basically to conquer the Roman world um, you know, with the gospel. It is the hope that enabled the, he says, the medievals to create the great institutions um, that are the bedrock of our, you know, universities and thinking today. And it's also the help, hope that helped Christians to fight against the slave trade and all matters of injustices that took place across history. And, uh, and despite the odds, because the thing is, you know, there are various places in the world we know these injustices and evils take place. It doesn't always end well. A lot of people die. It's not just, oh, happy ending always. People die. But the thing is, it doesn't matter. There's this, 
I would say for any dictator that has a country that wants to suppress people that have this type of hope, there's this annoying persistence that they, if the more you kill them, the more they come back because there's no fear of death. And so um, it's this great hope that we have and um, that can help us get through the evils in life. Um, and that's when we experience it personally in our lives because sometimes you're going to experience heinous evil happening in your own life. You might lose everything, literally everything. And that's why, you know, guys like Habakkuk who saw the destruction of the Jerusalem and the nation coming and uh, he's asking God for justice and God is like saying this is going to happen and how Habakkuk is dealing with that. If Job is a classic uh, Christian sort of like response to, to evil and Job losing everything um, and how we as Christians can still persist and deal with the evil uh, despite losing everything and suffering greatly there's still the trust in the good nature and character of God and the, the strong hope that we have that evil God's not wrestling with evil. Oh, is he going to make it the last moment? Oh, God, is he's, got, he's got evil by the hand or he's got Satan by the hand. No, no, no. God is going to win. Um, that is the hope that gets us through the evil. So whoever is listening, I just want to tell you out there, there is hope. Whatever evil you are suffering or whatever evil it may be, there is always hope um, in Christ. To the one who suffered the most heinous evil, he knows your suffering. There's literally no one else that knows suffering more than he does. And maybe we can then end on this verse. Revelation 21 verse 4 to 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true.